The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things movies, music, media, monsters, and more, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Today we're traveling to 1890s Paris. The Paris Opera House is eager to kick off its new season with a spellbinding production of Faust. But strange things are afoot. Whispers of an opera ghost echo through the halls. If you don't believe us, maybe you should talk to the occupant in box number five. It's time to dress to the nines and put on your mask because we're headed deep down into the bowels of the Paris Opera House in search of the mysterious Phantom of the Opera. To a new world of gods and monsters. Listen to them. Children of the night. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? I'll show you who I am and what I am! <laughs> You're insane. I tell you, I killed a wolf, a plain, ordinary wolf! By studying these and other species, we add to our knowledge of how life evolved, how it adapted itself to this world. He went for a little walk. <laughs> Welcome to the first episode of The Monsters That Made Us, the podcast where we celebrate the spooktacular characters and films in the classic Universal Studios monster series. Today we'll be talking about The Phantom of the Opera, the original silent film from 1925, starring the man of a thousand faces, Lon Chaney. I'm the invisible Dan Cologne, and joining me is my illustrious co-host, Monster Mike Manzi. How you doing, Mike? Bonjour, Daniel. Je suis Monster Mike, and I am ready to go to the opera. I got my mask, and I'm ready for a show. Make sure you got your cape on, too, because you got to look pretty good. Exactly. So, yeah, I really want to get into the history of this movie, because, frankly, the, the production was such a disaster. It's amazing. It not only got made, but also became one of the greatest movies to come out of the silent era. Real quick, before we do that, I kind of want to get a sense of your history with The Phantom of the Opera and your thoughts after watching it this time. Have, had you seen this production before? Yeah, so I had only seen this about once or twice before, and I'm not even exactly sure which version I watched, to be honest with you. It was quite a while ago, but my first introduction to the Phantom at large, you know, he never ran into Abbott and Costello, as far as I can remember, and I mostly knew him growing up from the Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber musical on Broadway. Ah, right? yeah. The the spirit of the night, like all that stuff, right? My parents loved that. My dad had that soundtrack in his car for like 30 years, you know, like, and I always loved it. Then later as like a teenager, late teens, early college, like, I got really into Phantom of the Paradise by Brian De Palma, which uh, sure, yeah. is sort of like a rock opera version. It's more like Faust than Phantom, I guess, but it's all sort of the same stuff just very updated into like a rock opera and then um i ended up seeing this you know i probably saw this first on like turner classics right like tcm is yeah, an amazing yeah, yeah. network i think even ted turner in general like is responsible for saving a lot of you know maybe not these movies in particular but like for sure trying to get these movies back in circulation like old classic films so i probably saw it there first if i'm not mistaken it's in public domain so like you could kind of pick this up anywhere but i got that really nice you know kino classics copy that i think we both have on blu-ray and uh i watched every version of that for this recording and so like that's that was like three different versions of you know getting ready for this so uh by this point i've seen it a lot yeah same i watched this i want to say somewhere around high school college 
we may have had to watch it in a film study class I had in high school. If it wasn't this, it was the universal production of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which also starred Lon Chaney. So... Yeah, this has floated around in my life here and there. I can't pinpoint exactly when I first saw it, but I mean, it's impossible to not be familiar with the Phantom of the Opera in some regard. I mean, the image of Lon Chaney as his mask is being pulled off is pretty famous. You know, that shows up whether you're seeking it out or not. That thing's just going to pop up if you're into horror or filmmaking in general. Plus, of course, you know, the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical I was familiar with. You know, as a kid, I read the Goosebumps version, the Phantom of the Auditorium. I haven't seen the De Palma film yet. Yet, but it has quite a reputation and I, and I really want to seek it out at some point. Yeah, my primarily my familiarity with Phantom of the Opera is this 1925 film. There are other adaptations we've mentioned, but this is the one that to me is Phantom. So I was really excited to, to revisit it. I didn't know until I started watching this disc. Yeah, you're right. I, we do have the same Kino Classics Blu-ray and, and it has, I think, three different versions on it, but there are like, I think, five versions when you consider the, the multiple scores. There's a couple different score options you can set. There's four Footage from a 1930 sound release. So, I mean, right. it's pretty loaded with extras, and I think if you're a fan of Phantom of the Opera, I definitely would recommend that you check out this disc, because there's a lot of really good stuff to check out on it. Okay, so let's get into some of the background of it. This movie, it's a miracle it exists. It really is a miracle that this movie exists, considering the amount of films that have been lost to time, right? And especially around this era, I know there's like an amazing audio commentary to go along with a version of this movie. Did you listen to that? I did, yeah. And he said, he mentioned something to the effect of, of the thousand, I think there were, what, 10,000 some silent films made in the United States in total, like only about 2,000 in change still exist. The rate of preservation is only around 20%, which is just staggering to me. Yeah, and this was back in the day when this is silver nitrate film yeah. so this stuff is combustible like a couple of months ago we had that giant explosion at the docks yeah uh, remember that made the news and that was all nitrate and so another reason that these movies don't exist is that the prints just blew up like quite literally like they would catch on fire they would disintegrate there's just no great way to preserve this stuff and so this movie in particular you could tell probably how popular it must have been at the time for copies to sort of still exist that's sort of how I gauge the movies that have sort of been saved is like the rate of their what their popularity must have been for a copy to last this long right and I didn't realize that like of course I know that film preservation became a thing much later and, and now we have archivists I have a friend who's uh, trained in, in film preservation and you know she gets really into that but at the time you know I don't think anybody really thought that these films were going to be worth saving maybe or just didn't anticipate the rate of decomposition so yeah the amount of films that are lost to time it makes me really sad when I think about it because there's so many things that we'll never get to see in, in all likelihood. And if they still exist, the nitrate film, if it hasn't been preserved, is probably in unusable condition at this point. Yeah, I like to think about the stuff that did survive. To go on YouTube and think we could, like, just recently someone posted, like, a Lumiere Brothers snowball fight outside the studio, like, colorized, and then speed to match you know modern viewing and everything and it's remarkable and, and all that and we got to remember this is like 1925 like movies have not been around very long and like feature-length films at that have not been around very long and we're still in the silent era so everything is very new and you're absolutely right I don't think people were thinking about the future they were just living in the moment basically <laughs> like film preservation yeah I don't think that was a term for sure. And I also heard that Universal Studios of the major studios at the time were the worst at preserving their films. So I guess we can just thank the movie gods that we still have 
fan of the opera <laughs> to look back on because it really is an incredible film and uh, despite the uh, production nightmares speaking of which let's kind of get into that yeah in 1922 carl lamley the president of universal went to paris and he had such a great time and he was so taken with the paris opera house that when he met gaston larue who wrote the novel the fan of the opera larue gave him a copy of the novel and he read it in a night as the story goes and immediately bought the film rights specifically as a vehicle for lon cheney who at the time was kind of hot shit as a uh, silent film actor. You know, at that point he had done Hunchback and he had done a lot of other films where he had also shown off his incredible skill with makeup. Yeah, he was already, I think, the man of a thousand faces, yes. right? Well, I think of like the show Face Off right now, where it's like all these makeup artist experts and shit, and it's like, no, he was the only dude pretty much back then. Yeah, he's a guy who worked double duty. I don't think it was very common. I would love to know more about that myself. But yeah, the fact that he was his own makeup artist and was able to achieve such incredible results with his skill as a makeup artist. I watched it and I thought, these effects would hold up today if you were to put these effects into a film today it would absolutely hold up and i think that's a testament to his skill as a, as a makeup artist to me it's like this is the coolest part of this movie is just seeing lon cheney develop this character basically on his own because as, as we'll talk about the director of this film was kind of mediocre at best and didn't have much of an eye for this stuff so thankfully we had lon cheney in there to do the heavy lifting with the look of this character and it is a lot of heavy lifting because most of this character is going to be the look so like i was surprised about that upon rewatching. there isn't a lot going on deep down otherwise that we get to really know we really have to infer a lot by the end about who this eric character is and all that but i'm sure we'll get there in in due time so carl namley gets the rights to of the opera he consulted a french art director his name ben Carré, who gave him kind of an idea of what the cellars and the uh, underground of the opera house looked like what i thought was fascinating about this is that his contribution to the film he was a not credited for and b didn't even find out that his work was uh, or his designs had been used for the film until he saw the film in the 1970s <laughs> so this one of the great things about this movie is the the art design and it's amazing to me that this guy could not get any credit for it yeah, man, those were the days, you know what I'm saying? Those are the days, like, you know, Lemley and company and everybody, like, even they had to, like, escape Edison, right? And, yeah. And his tyrannical grip, like, you know, it, it's like, oh, you're all the way on the other side of the ocean in France? Like, you know, good luck to you, Red. You yeah. know, it's the 1920s, what are you going to do kind of attitude is just like this philanthropy like run wild at the time kind of stuff but yeah i don't know if that's the actual case but that's how it kind of was fantasized in my mind sure <laughs> but like this look though just real quickly like all of this like art design and direction and all this kind of stuff like you could tell like this is euro right like this is 100 german expression like robert ween cabinet of dr caligari was not much sooner than this movie came out it's amazing how quickly that visual influence sort of gripped horror gothic style so early that's what i was sort of amazed about is like this movie's sort of maison scene and everything like it's all there when you think about horror movies so as i was re-watching this film you know i was blown away I mean, I don't know how many notes I made. I made several notes, probably I duplicated notes over the multiple times I watched this movie, just about the art design and the, the opera house itself is enormous. That curtain is, I don't know how many stories tall, but they really do a great job of getting that sense of scale of the opera house. And then the sub-level areas. The dungeons and the torture chambers. Yeah, it all looks really good and I think that's definitely a testament to Ben Kari's designs but also the cinematography there because I think that they did a great job of giving us you know the background middle ground foreground to really give us a sense of how deep and cavernous this space was a lot of high contrast imagery which I thought was 
incredible. You know, it definitely adds to that spooky atmosphere. Lots of blacks. And then, of course, you've got the color tints to add to the overall spookiness of these environments. Yeah, I couldn't get over just how big the space looked, even though I'm sure a lot of this was shot on sets. The the designs really sold this idea to me that this space was a lot bigger than it actually was. And that there were just catacombs upon catacombs upon catacombs. I think the Phantom says at one point they're like five stories below ground or something like that. And I believe it. Yeah. You know, there's just so many levels and, and layers to it. The scope to this film is incredible. Like, I almost feel like we're here like at the end almost of the silent era. And this is like peak silent filmmaking as far as technology you know when you think about it like these are all sets these are all on sound stages like it, it boggles my mind the scope of all of this and like the perspective that they're able to pull off you know like as we go deeper and stuff as you mentioned about like the, the sub basements like one is where they store like all these gigantic props for the theater and then there's another section where the Phantom can fit a goddamn horse <laughs> yep right yep. like he puts Christine on a horse and they go walking through so you're like damn this place is huge and then there's like the river right like the the, the river of runoff of, of like shit and everything <laughs> like that it's but it's enormous you know like all these little details like we got to take a horse then a boat then we're gonna walk some more and now we're finally at my little lair and everything it's like it's super impressive the director was Rupert Julian. He's the one who got the credit for directing this. The screenwriter was Elliot J. Clausen. Now, these are two guys who are one of several people who were credited for their jobs, respectively. Rupert Julian got the top bill for the director credit. But, as I've learned, this movie went through multiple reshoots, multiple rewrites. So, Elliot J. Clausen, he wrote, I think, at least three drafts of this script. The first draft was very similar. Like He, he stayed pretty close to the source material. That included... Uh, scene that they did shoot in which the phantom summons christine to her father's grave and then plays music on a violin there's imagery out there like promotional imagery of the phantom playing the violin they shot the scene it got cut out there was another scene i think in a in a subsequent rewrite where they sort of included a flashback of eric before he became the phantom where he was working as a executioner in persia okay he fell out of favor with the Sultan and was condemned to be eaten alive by ants. You know, like, this movie could have gone in so many crazy places. So yeah, they had to keep rewriting it and rewriting it. Eventually, they decided not to have a redeeming moment for the Phantom. I know that was a thing for a little while. They wanted to give him a moment at the end where Christine kisses him or shows sympathy for him. And, and then I think they made the wise decision to keep him completely evil the whole time. So like, over all these different drafts, it could have been all these different things. And I, and I can't can't imagine the movie being half as good with some of this stuff staying in it so I'm really glad that, that it didn't make it into the final film. It's incredible like I wasn't even aware that this movie was sort of like this movie got kind of like a Snyder cut like treatment to yeah. it in a way when sound pictures started coming out Carl Lemley pulled a Howard Hughes like he's like we're not going to reshoot the whole picture but we're going to re-release the picture for the sound era and we're actually going to put the opera into the Phantom of the Opera this time right? exactly like, reshoot some new footage we're going to switch around some characters you know we're going to jigger the plot a little bit we're going to cut maybe like a half hour out of this sucker and re-release it and I don't think at the time anyone was none the wiser right like who could have known this was really going on but it's just amazing that this feels like such a modern trend and it's been there from the beginning 
Yeah, 100%. Like, I didn't realize the version of Phantom that I was most familiar with was a recut, you know, like a reissue that was entirely different from what had premiered in 1925. One of the things I learned, they really re-released this movie for sound, and then there's a whole audio track, you know? Like, I didn't know that there was audio for Phantom of the Opera. I listened to a little of that audio track, and when the cat comes down the stairs, it's a human saying meow. It's one of the most adorable things. Yeah, if you were to get this disc, that's definitely worth checking out. I mean, it's not the complete film. They don't have a cut of the film that syncs up to the audio that exists. So what they've done is sync up scenes that they can sync up with, and then they'll have segments without video just so you can hear the audio. But yeah, there's some really great stuff in there. Like, the cat's pretty funny. I I wasn't aware that there were so many versions of this film in existence. So it took about two months to finish this film. No doubt a lot of money, a lot of rewrites. When it was tested for an audience like they hated it. It was deemed too intense. They really didn't respond well to it. So Carl Lamley decided, okay, we're going back to the well. The audience cited like that they had wanted a little levity just to cut some of the intensity of the film. So instead of just throwing in some small, like sort of light moments, they kind of went the opposite way and just went full tilt comedy, adding like all these other sort of goofy sequences. I don't have specific examples in front of me. Oh, well, there's like the one where the stagehand is going up and down the trap door and he's clearly doing like a Buster Keaton thing. And I was like, oh, I see. Okay. Yes. And so when they tested it again, the audience rejected it again because it was too funny. Tonally, it just wasn't jiving. So then they went to the well again a third time. And now, so what exists in this 1925 and 1929 release, a lot of it is... Julian's, the director, Julian, Rupert Julian, his contribution to the film. I know a lot of his work was taken out for that second version of it, that more funny version, and then it was all put back in. And now we've got these character moments, like these character actors that exist, like you said, like Buster Keaton. The actor you're referring to, is it Florian Papillon? I think it is. He's one of the stagehands. He actually worked with Buster Keaton for a while uh, in the early days. Yeah, so he came from a background of silent comedy. And I think that the film benefits from his presence, especially in that early half hour, because that's the the time in the film where we're setting up this character of the Phantom, right? He's like a ghost and and everyone's telling different stories about him and having him in there to sort of lighten the tone a little bit is a really great way to keep us like a little off guard. Yeah, I think they do a really good job of setting the scene you know, so to speak, like as far as telling us like, okay, this is going to take place not just like at the opera, but it's backstage, you know? It's just like um, almost like a movie about the process. Well, we could tell what it's like to put on a show. So everybody from like vaudeville to the opera to you know was probably familiar with a lot of the stuff they were seeing backstage and everything so that probably engrossed them a little more and i always like seeing movies like that as well you know it kind of i almost thought of birdman once or twice (laughs) about like all of the just chaos that can haunt a set or a production certainly some of my favorite stuff is probably like the comedy if that but like yeah backstage with the ballerinas and the stagehands like it might be perceived more as like dark humor these days because when they're talking to the man joseph about the phantom they're like joseph knows him and joseph is sitting on a gigantic skull holding like 
like a fake human head and it's like super morose you know what i'm saying like there's a double entendre jokes going on about like people are gonna be losing their heads or like you know what i'm saying like it's dark but it's funny at the same time i wonder if audiences could discern stuff like that or if we're just more sophisticated yeah i'd be interested to to know more about that i really liked that contrast between those two characters right because you know you have one guy who's maybe not taking it so seriously than the other guy who's deathly serious yeah i like the balance in that early part of the film for sure there's also the funny stuff too man where like so like as it starts out you know the uh owners of the opera house like are freaking out because of the phantom so they try and do like a quick shady deal and dish off the opera house to these new owners and like after they sign the deal the owners are like oh yeah by the way like watch out for the phantom and shit and i was like well that's really funny like that again felt like more modern than i was expecting yeah and what kind of shady business practice is that my first thought was you know it's like you know if you were to buy a house where somebody had committed suicide or if there was a murder you know you kind of have to know that information before you're you know before you buy the house these guys kept that information to themselves and then unloaded their opera house on a couple of unwitting suspects and then these guys are just now they got to deal with it that's kind of messed up they're like yeah right right they're like yeah whatever true like i don't believe you and then the next minute they open up box five and the phantom's sitting there they're like holy shit (laughs) oh no like what we just damn it like that was funny so i want to talk a little bit about the sound reissue i thought that was pretty interesting that the reason that universal had reissued this movie with a new soundtrack was to respond to the rising popularity in sound films you know the jazz singer had come out just a few years prior and now they had this movie that was popular in 1925 when it came out it was the perfect sort of movie to add music to because it's literally about an opera i wanted to ask you real quick try and put yourself in the shoes of even today, right? Like you go into a movie called Phantom of the Opera and there's no opera in it. Like, would you be pissed as a person back in the day or would you kind of like understand that the technology at the time doesn't allow, like, would you know as like a layman what's going on or would you feel sort of burned about that? And, and I think that might have led to why this was re-released. Like, I think that's why so much extra effort was put into his re-release was like it's like a eureka like we could put the actual music into this movie that fits kind of stuff yeah it's hard to know how people would have responded to that in 25 because they weren't used to hearing sound with films right so if you went to see a movie and it was about an opera you would definitely see the opera and i think the movie succeeds in that but i don't know that they would have been expecting to hear people sing but yeah how perfect is this film for a re-release now that we have sound what i love is that they decided they were going to re-release it but not only that they were going to shoot brand new footage to increase the amount of opera footage in the film and and, and present more or create more possibilities for sound. I also learned that the original woman who played Carlotta in the 1925 version was replaced for the 1930 reissue. And so what they did was in the 1930 reissue they created these scenes where she's in the manager's office you know screaming at the managers because she wants to be on stage singing marguerite in the show and so what they did was they just kind of creatively made her Carlotta's mother, created new text cards, and they have the whole letter from the Phantom, and then suddenly she's Carlotta's mother. Then they recast Carlotta with a different actor for the opera scenes. It's incredible, man. Like, that made me think of Singing in the Rain. You know, that movie is about when sound film comes out, one of the most popular silent film actresses has has just, like, the worst voice for sound pictures, and so they do, like, the whole Millie Vanilli thing, where, like, they get this woman to fill in for her voice but then she becomes great so i think they end up just replacing her 
altogether. It's been a while since I saw the movie. But, you know, this poor woman, you know, Virginia Pearson, who plays Carlotta, like, not only in the in the show, like, in the story, does Carlotta get, like, the boot and everything and shoved out the side, but, like, this actress playing her gets recast and, like, has to play her own mother. It's so crazy. Like, I love it. I, yeah, I don't know that it, it was because they couldn't get Virginia Pearson to, to reprise the role. Like, I don't know the story behind that. It's possible that four years later, when they were recutting, she was onto something else. And then they had this footage they had to use, so I, I could very easily see them saying, alright, well, this is the footage we got, we can't get rid of it, so, you know, we can re-edit it so that she becomes an entirely new character, and then just recast Mary Fabian as the new Carlotti. So smart, man. How do you make a movie like that? It's insane. Just like a title card here, you know, like a title card there, and the context is completely different. It's amazing. To think in that dimension, you know, we went to school and studied film, but we, we studied talkies, you know? Sure. I, I watch a lot of silent film, but like when you watch like Chaplin, you know, and they're making these silent films, you see like the director just yelling shit at him, like just, you know, because they can't hear it. So he's just like, now you're angry. Now you're mad. Now you're even more mad. It's hard to think like that in modern times. Oh, 100%. I guess the closest that we've gotten to a situation like this was when Terry Gilliam was like midway through production of the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus and Heath Ledger died. And so he had to find a way to finish the movie without his lead actor because so much of the movie was fantastical, presented an opportunity for that character to be recast. And so we've got, who was it? It was Colin Farrell, Jude Law, and Johnny Depp, I think, all playing that character at various points in the film. That's the only sort of modern example I can think of where... A film was being made and then like they had to pivot and just totally recast the role in a way that made sense. I can't think of a different example, but I think that's amazing that a film can be made that way. And it's crazy because nowadays it's kind of frowned upon, you know, like I mentioned earlier, the Snyder Cut, right? And like, I'm excited for it, but like, you know, it's got a bad reputation already. And like things like um, the Star Wars Special Editions, you know, those came to mind, okay? Or like, just all the times people went back and tinkered with shit to change it, it just felt kind of like on the wrong side. But to see it here this early is really making me like reconsider my my opinion about a lot of that and like kind of going back and giving it like a more of a benefit of the doubt i guess i I don't know that anybody is yammering for a rupert julian cut of this movie because uh as i said before he was a pretty mediocre director no i have a feeling that you know carl emily was sort of running the whole show most of the time anyway in a very sort of howard hughesian not in the same type of person but in that kind of persona like lauded over the entire studio system almost think of like hail caesar where he was probably just like walking around the lot all day long going from one production to another like giving his notes making sure they're doing what he says there's stories that i've heard about rupert julian had these ideas ideas that he wanted to do for the film and and the most popular uh, example of that is the chandelier falling onto the audience he wanted the film to cut to black at that point and nobody else agreed with him the cinematographer didn't agree with him because he thought why would you cut to black the chandelier in in the opera house is not the only source of light so he just kind of like yesed rupert julian in the moment and then shot it the way he wanted to and that's why the movie doesn't cut to black you know, when that thing falls down. So even Lon Chaney had a pretty contemptuous relationship with Rupert Julian to the point where they wouldn't even speak to one another. And Rupert Julian would tell the cinematographer, tell Lon to do this. And then Lon Chaney famously responded, tell him to go to hell. It sounds like John Landis and Eddie Murphy on the set of Coming to America, where like, how do you make an amazing movie where you're not even talking to each other? But Lon Chaney also strikes me as the kind of guy you don't tell him how to do his 
job, right? It's like, we got Lon Chaney, man, like, back up, let him do his thing and like, just take the credit, right? Like, that's all you need to do. Don't go tinkering with too much. And if you do, know when to sort of say when. It's possible that's the case. But based on what I've learned about Lon Chaney, he was really not a diva and was not really into being a movie star. Now, he may have thought he knew better than his director in these with this film. So certainly possible. Just saying that the impression I've gotten of Lon Chaney as a human being was not that he was like super into being a movie star and, and you know just kind of having that diva attitude yeah i only know what i know from the james cagney movie the man of a thousand faces but i did find out that his parents were deaf i thought that was kind of interesting and the movie makes that like extremely taboo for the time which i don't know was absolutely accurate but like that was interesting to find out that that his parents were deaf and you know i don't know if that sort of colored the way that he made his face look right like because of like if you could tell everything you need to say in an expression what's the use of words right and it's kind of amazing he became like this huge silent film star at that right yeah that would certainly make sense considering i mean just the work in in this film his facial expressions are great and and he doesn't have i mean in the second half of the film he has plenty of opportunities to really you know be expressive with his face but for the first half he's doing it all with his hands i didn't realize just how expressive he was with just his hands until i watched this three four five times in the past couple weeks i was like man he's really doing a lot of work because in a lot of those silhouettes that's still lon cheney yeah his body language is incredible right like he's i look forward to seeing how him and dracula you know compare when it comes to their hypnotic hand gestures and everything yeah they're very similar right one quick thing i forgot about with the sound re-release that i didn't know is that so universal and lon cheney like the contract they had with him did not allow for them to dub footage of lon cheney when you could see him oh is that why there was no scream i was i was so expecting them to overdub like a a scream of christine when when she reveals the phantom's face but he's in the shot so i guess they could yeah there was some kind of contract stipulation that if he was on screen they could not dub his voice i don't know the specifics of that arrangement but that's why you know whenever he's on screen you never hear him speak yeah i don't know that i've ever heard his voice when we get to karloff like he went on and to become sort of like a very distinct voice with with his distinct lisp and everything and all that kind of stuff i mean bella very you know distinct voice you know claude rains like down the line pretty much so i don't think i've ever heard this guy's voice which is interesting yeah and like we hear the phantom speak a couple times but it's always in silhouette so if you i don't know if you noticed that oh those are some great title cards too where like you get the text and his silhouette at the same time yeah yeah yeah. i made a note about that one the best one that i saw was when the chandelier is about to collapse and he he says behold she is singing to bring down the chandelier like that was one of the greatest because you don't typically see the text on top of the image like that so yeah good call i really i really enjoyed that moment and so much like iconic about the phantom like we're going on like it's it's his look it's his movement like you can tell from the silhouette right like that is almost like the mark of a good character design and he's just a hat and a cape at that point yet it's still distinct like it's very it's very impressive that's my word of the night i think you know this movie that's almost 100 years old i'm having like a matrix moment right where it's like blowing my mind on all these different (laughs) levels and shit that's how i wonder if people felt watching this was it just too much were people's minds getting blown left and right i mean we haven't even talked about the fact that there was color 
in a movie from 1925. Yes. Like, what? I don't think the color version was in the 25 film. Maybe it was. That I'm a little fuzzy on. It's in the 1929 20 frame per second version that I watched. So that much I know. So I'm not sure if that was shot in 25 or, or what, but I believe the guy on the commentary said it's two-color Technicolor. They don't have all of the f- actual footage, so the masquerade sort of shifts back to black and white at, at, towards the end. Right, and not only was it two-color Technicolor for that scene, but then there are other moments in the film, specifically the scene after that where Christine and Raul are on the roof and the Phantom is above them. You know, his cape is blowing in the wind. That was all done by hand. That was all done by hand. That reminds me of Spawn, um, <laughs> the comic book character, because it's just so gothic, and he's got the giant flowing red cape and everything. But what an impact that, like, okay, we only have, like, a certain amount of time to use color because it was probably super expensive and very hard to do this and so to use it for the masquerade ball sequence is just perfect it's perfect because like he's in this shocking red costume later on they bring the color back for the fire for red so like red is really the primary one for the most part it really sticks out and it's really cool too how they also use tints for the rest of the film which was a common practice at the time but uh, just felt like it belonged much more with sequences of color in addition yeah and I think that masquerade ball sequence it still is very inspiring and very impressive I watched it and I love when I see these old films that have been given color before color film was really a common practice there's another Ted Turner thing was he colorized all that shit at one point yes he did (laughs) a lot of people were pissed (laughs) so to get a little bit off track, I got to see a, a copy of Georges Méliès' A Trip to the Moon that had been colorized. It was it was a rare color print, and like every cell had been hand painted, which was incredible to see projected. So that's when I first learned about early color film, how they would do it, and they would you know paint these cells by hand. I thought, how the hell do you make a whole movie? I mean, that was just a, was that a twenty minute film. So I, I love the way that they put color to use in this because I don't know that I would love the film as much if it was completely in color. I think that the tints and the deep contrast really do a great job of selling the spookiness of this story. But that's the party scene, right? And then now we've got all this color. And I have to wonder how audiences responded to that in 1929. You know, like we think about The Wizard of Oz being this moment where, you know, we're in sepia tone and we open the door and now we're in Oz and it's like bright colors. Like this must have had some similar effect in 29. Oh, yeah, that's a that's a good call. That, that totally compares. Like that's 10 years later, right? That's in 39. And I mean, you know, Gone with the Wind is a full-color movie the same year, but the idea uh, that Wizard of Oz used going from sepia tone to color is very much reminds me now of this because once the color's here it's here for as much it's here for the rest of the movie in ways right like they bring it back and touch it it's like once they introduce like an element or a gimmick they keep it you know they kind of keep it around right it's not going to be all color but later like i said we get the flames we get the phantom's weird little like assistant's face in color when he's coming towards the screen and stuff like it's it's here and there yeah i always love that stuff and i was really happy with how that looks. I mean, this this Kino disc, I don't want to keep plugging it, but they did such a great job with the restoration and I think that's it's definitely one of the show-stopping moments of this film. So, credit to them. I watched the 1925 version and it's not as polished as the 1929 version, right? Like, they didn't really put it through the same process, I guess. Or maybe it's just the, uh, the print that they had compiled or I don't know, whatever factors involved. But I found that kind of interesting where they're like, no, maybe you should, like, this is the one we want you to watch and the rest is sort of just for like historical homework or whatever like that. 
We've kind of given a rough overview of the production of this film, and we've kind of gotten into some specific sequences. We can kind of get into just the film itself and, and what we enjoyed about it, what we uh, maybe didn't, or whatever the case may be. But, you know, for most people, I think we're all familiar with The Phantom of the Opera. The Paris Opera House is opening for a new show. It's been sold at the last second to a new set of owners, and there is a phantom lurking behind the scenes. So with this new production of Faust, we find that there are a lot of things going on, sort of like mysterious things backstage and of course we learn the phantom is taken with christine who is the understudy for carlotta who has the famous marguerite scene in faust and he is going to do whatever it takes to make sure she gets top billing in this show and so of course he kills a couple people and you know just generally makes life miserable for the people of the of the opera house let's see who else what other characters we have we've got raul who is in love with christine as well excuse me but it's it's vicomte raul de chagnay <laughs> this guy's my man. I mean, he goes from being a cuck to being the hero, right? Like, he's not going to be sidelined by no phantom. No one's going to steal his girl. This dude fascinates me for whatever reasons like i can't put my finger on it all but i was like why is he so fancy like what's his deal what's a viscount like what is all that shit and like he, he's just like a wealthy landowner dude like he's just kind of like a rich guy like he might have been in the military just by looking at him i don't know man i thought this guy was cool because like he goes to christine and he's like we got to get married and christine's like i can't i'm in love with this phantom i never even well, she doesn't say the phantom but she's like i can't leave the opera like i, I in fact i can never see you again and he he overhears the phantom sort of like wooing her and hypnotizing her and shit and he's like i ain't gonna stand for that man like i'm i'm not gonna be second fiddle to no phantom bro <laughs> i just love how he fought for her i just thought it was like that old-fashioned chivalry kind of stuff almost swashbuckler or something like that this dude impressed me in this particular version of Phantom of the Opera, I find Raul and Christine to be maybe the least interesting characters. Yeah, I think we watch different movies. There are other productions of this story where Raul has a bigger role. He's given more to do. I think in the Joel Schumacher movie, there's like a whole sword fight between him and the Phantom. Oh, dope. Yeah, so Raul in other versions of the story is given a lot more to do, but in this version I find that both of them are a little bit flat for the story, but I don't mind it because I'm so captivated with the Phantom character. They're kind of stock lover characters in this. This version really puts the Phantom front and center and really spends a lot of time building, you know, the mood and even, in, like I said, the first 30 minutes of this film, Lon Chaney, you never see him, but he is in every frame of this film, just, you know, in the in the periphery, right? Like, he's always there. We always know he's somewhere. He's in shadow. He's, like, hidden here and there. He's always dropping notes, right? Yep. He's like, do this or else, like, do this or else. I'm like, dude, Dude, the boy is just haunting them so hard. Yeah, so I don't mind that our romantic leads are just a little bit flat because Chaney is so great as the Phantom and that the film really plays to his strengths. But another character I really like is Ledoux. He is our sort of mysterious figure in the background. Whenever there's some sort of Phantom activity going on, he always seems to be there. He's there on opening night. Uh, even some of the, the ballerinas kind of wonder, maybe he's the Phantom. And then at the masquerade, ball the phantom arrives in his red death costume and, and ledoux is not far behind so i i like ledoux quite a bit the 1925 version gave more backstory to all of these characters right christine and raul and ledoux gets they get a little more screen time way more i feel like there's way more yeah 
Yeah, so, but I think that cutting out a lot of Ledoux's scenes for the 1929 version is a good move. I kind of prefer Ledoux when he's more mysterious. I don't want to know as much as they tell us about him in, in that original cut. Yeah, I feel like he's played to be a red herring in the newer version, in the newer version. Right? <laughs> I, guess, I guess it is the newer and the older version. But like, yeah, in the 29 version, like, it's much more like maybe he is the Phantom pretty much until the masquerade, right? Where he sees, you know, the Phantom's there and he's there and they're in the same place at the same time and everything. But I think it's, I think he's really striking. I wonder, because like, I also think we find out that he's special police earlier in the 25 cut. Um, and I wonder if that is sort of like a holdover in any way from the novel, not necessarily this character but from what i understand the novel is more of like a detective novel and i think we follow like a detective who's sort of trying to figure out what's going on at the opera house and so maybe that's sort of a nod this character might be like kind of that because we don't have too many cops in this movie i noticed uh there's one or two i think they might even be excised from the from the 29 version but like they actually go to a police station in the 1925 version and like introduce each other to each other and being like, yes, I'm here from out of town and like I'm looking for the Phantom and I'm going to be around and like, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I like that they kept them this mysterious weirdo. Yeah, same. So the Phantom is giving the owners of the theaters multiple warnings that Carlotta is not to appear as Marguerite during Faust and that Christine will take her place. And of course, that goes as well as expected. Christine gets the gig that first time but then uh, everyone starts to doubt the seriousness of the phantom which they should not do carlotta insists on going out there to perform and so the phantom drops the chandelier on top of the audience which most people i think know that moment from the, the musical that was the big moment I knew about from the musical for sure was like a chandelier falls and like people get crushed and all that. What I also didn't remember because uh, it had been a while since I'd seen this, but the idea that they're performing Faust, like there is some kind of cool double meaning going on there with this deal with the devil kind of thing. And it kind of reminded me of Shakespeare. I didn't know that it would, but it's like in Hamlet. Yeah. They're doing a play within a play. Yep. And like that play is about what Hamlet's going through, you know, and they like put it on intentionally so that his uncle would see like I know what you did and everything it's like about some some like guy who killed his brother or something and so it was really cool in here to be like oh yeah like even when we're not following the Phantom and shit like we're following Faust and that story intersects or like interweaves into what we're, what we're kind of watching here too like this Faustian Christine's deal with the devil per se and so the Phantom then sneaks into Christine's dressing room and sort of sweeps her away and takes her down into his lair deep beneath the Paris Opera House. And that's really the first time we really get to see the Phantom in his own element. And I think that whole sequence, as we mentioned before, of getting from her dressing room down into his lair is, is one of the more fun sequences to watch just for those who appreciate set design and good high contrast cinematography. Yeah, you know, I love the horse. And the horse. <laughs> I can't get over the Phantom's horse, man. Like, that's shocking. And also the Phantom's mask. Very unsettling. Like, maybe almost more than when you see his real face. It's very creepy. And I wonder if this was some kind of, you know, connection to this is after World War One, right? Like, I feel like this might have been saying, like, people with deformities are trying to live lives. And I think of, like, the Elephant Man and things like that when I see the Phantom with a mask on. You know, right. I think of, like, a guy trying to conform to society, but it just won't allow him. I don't really want to give that kind of empathy to this character, per se, when I find out what he's up to and on all that but I wondered if there was something like that 
going on at the time. Well, there was definitely some element of that coming from Lon Chaney. I know that he as an actor would play a lot of deformed characters. I mean, there's a whole laundry list of deformed characters he played. And with each and every one, he, he tried to bring some sense of humanity to those characters. And I do think that he succeeds to some degree in, in this film, even though the Phantom is pretty messed up and pretty monstrous in his expectations. But like, I can see the sympathetic person underneath the evil, you know, the evil intent. Yeah, he was supposed to, like, die of a broken heart in the original or something. Like, you know, they wanted you to empathize at some level. Yes, and, and even though they got rid of that sort of sympathetic ending, I do think Lon Chaney's performance does elicit some level of sympathy for this guy who had been born deformed and, you know, mistreated and so on and so forth. You know, like in other versions of this story, I've seen the Phantom be deformed in the film, you know, like it wasn't like he was born that way, maybe it was acid, like in the 1943 version, which we'll get to, in that version, he gets a chemical splashed onto his face, and that's what deforms his face you know i like that this version was born deformed was not made into a monster it was just he was he was born this way and then he just unfortunately took the wrong path through life he decided to become a kind of a creeper asshole it's crazy because we don't really get to know a lot about eric which is all we really know of his we don't even get a last name for this guy all we really know is that he escaped from like an, an insane asylum and he knows the black arts or something but we don't even know like he could have been locked up just because of how he looked, right? Like, he could have just been going about his day trying to help someone across the street, and then he's thrown in jail for, you know, five or six years or whatever, and he's forced to go insane or something, right? You know, so that I could kind of see, like, part of it being they made me, not made me do it, but, like, they kind of molded me into this monster in a way, right? Like, I didn't really want to do this, but, like, I can't help it at this point. Right. I think there was some version of that in previous scripts. That it doesn't really make it into the final version, but I think... I think that that's definitely in the subtext to some degree. And again, like I was saying, I think that's Lon Chaney trying to bring that out of the character with you know, the, the script he had to work with. I think we both agree that this particular phantom is just a psycho and he deserves to get thrown into a river. Torn to shreds. But I do believe that there's some humanity in there and that's largely due to Lon Chaney's performance. Yeah, it's funny because we were kind of talking a little bit last night before we were recording. We kind of, and I'm like, man, the Phantom, he's like an incel. He's like Joker, right? Yeah. Like he sits, not only is he in his basement, he's five basements down. He catfishes this poor woman, right? Yep. He's like, um, oh, Eric, like I'm the voice of music. I'm the spirit of sound. Come with me. He hypnotizes this woman into his bedroom and then he takes off the mask and she immediately wants to go home. She's like, you tricked me. You jerk off. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> and he's like, it is true. I am your master. You must obey me. I'm like, whoa, 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 buddy. Like th this, this got extreme way faster and way harder than I remember. Like this plays way more monstrous the further time marches on. <laughs> yeah, I can see how this might have been to some degree kind of romantic in the 1920s like I can see how the audience might read it that way romantic yeah weird <laughs> and I can see why the Andrew Lloyd Webber plays it a little more romantic but yeah watching this I think I texted you and I was like he's a 
fucking neckbeard. He deserves to get thrown into the Seine at the end of this movie. He pulls the whole master shit before he even before we even see his face. He's basically like, you know, I, I've gotten you the lead role in this show. I'm going to make you a star. And in return, you have to love me and marry me and so on and so forth. Dude, is this a star is born? Like, is this <laughs> the first, like, version of that? It's like, hey. And she just turns around and he's like, I just want to see you one more time. <laughs> like, I mean, there might be something to that. I don't know. Or maybe it's just one of those tales as old as time, right? Where it's just, like, this guy who, whether it be a man or a woman, just, like, crafts this person in their image. And then that person is like, I want to be my own person. And then just, like, the resentment collides. Yeah, I mean, as, as someone who has been the victim of unrequited love, you know, like, I can certainly sympathize with some part of him. Here, here. <laughs> but, you know, I don't condone the, the hypnotizing and abduction of, of innocent women. <laughs> yeah, I don't have, like, a secret love pad in a torture chamber. Right, and and so is, like, Lair. So some of the things that I loved about that Lair were just, like, just the set design. And, I mean, it's not crazy elaborate or anything like that, but there's some fun details in there. Like, my, my man sleeps in a coffin. He sleeps in a coffin, bro. <laughs> that's dark, man. And, like, right, that's before Dracula. Was Dracula published at the time could that have sort of been a grab to be like we want to do a little dracula like we want to throw a little more in here or something i don't know but i'm just wondering it made me think of dracula yeah there's a couple things in this film that reminded me of other things that were yet to come you know so him sleeping in a coffin obviously reminded reminded me of dracula as well but then at the end of the movie you've got joseph's brother leading a, a, a crowd of people with torches and pitchforks and i was like wait a second when, when i think torches and pitchforks i think frankenstein but like no we've got him here in 1925 so yeah there, there's definitely some stuff in here things we associate with other characters that like these hallmarks like coffins and torches and pitchforks and angry mobs and all those things are here in 1925 in phantom of the opera which is i don't mean this in the most literal sense but i think phantom of the opera is one of the more romantic of the early films you know i don't mean it romantic in, in that the phantom in his pursuit of love is is romantic but like there's a romance to this film like the, the sets and and the costuming and like it's a very beautiful film like that's that's sort of what i'm getting at yeah it's an opera you right. know what i'm Right. saying man like right. it's bombastic and i think there's i think the romance between you know for me anyway i know it's a little different for you but i think raul and christine make up for it for me you know i think there's like a that adventure action stuff that kicks in later it becomes you know, very indiana jones where they're like you know going through different traps and getting caught in the different elaborate you know torture devices and you know first they're being set on fire and then they're being drowned and like all this stuff and it gets there for me but i hear what you mean like visually yes that whole sort of gothic sensibility right i think uh, i'm not sure how much it's been on display to this point in america and especially at this degree like this is just an epic like it's just so wide scope for sure you know when you look for at sure. it it's it's huge one more thing about the Phantom's little, like, love nest. My boy, he's got a foot fetish. Did you notice he stole Christine's shoes and had them down there for her when she woke up? No. That is <laughs> creepy, man. <laughs> Maybe I'm a creeper for picking up on that. But, like, I'm like, what are you smelling those shoes with? You have no nose, man. Like, I didn't pick up on that. Oh, man. Okay. So when Christine is down in his lair, he basically tells her that uh, she has to do everything he says because he made her a star. Then we have the infamous reveal. The condition that he gives her, you know, you'll have everything you ever want as long as you love me and never touch my mask, right? So, of course, the first thing she does is pull his mask off. We get that incredible reveal, which I think is, again, I think I said at the beginning of the show, one of the most famous images from the silent era, like, ever. I think 
one of the most famous like film frames in history because like we're talking about early horror you know like this comes so early in in the genre itself so like i feel like when people just single out horror movies of the era this pops up probably immediately uh but that is still a very powerful moment you can hear her scream yeah and it's and and it's a silent film but like just by looking at her you can hear it it's crazy yeah, and, and I read somewhere that his makeup, like the look of the Phantom, was kept a secret from everybody. Until the film was released, univ- like even in the trailers for the Phantom, that you know, they tell you, you know, we've, we're keeping it all completely hidden. You might catch a few glimpses of, of Lon Chaney in, in the trailer. You know, of course, they're just, they're just shadows of the Phantom in the background. But yeah, the story is that uh, Universal kept this a secret from everybody, including the other actors on the set. So, as the story goes, Mary Philbin did not know what Lon Chaney was going to look like until she pulled that mask off. So what we see on screen is her natural reaction wow man even then they were like not improving, but doing stuff like that like getting the natural reaction like you hear stories about that with alien and ridley scott right where like people weren't they didn't know when the chestburster was going to come how sort of like violent it was going to be so those are natural reactions i heard the story about the dark knight no one knew what heath ledger was going to look like and uh, until they filmed that scene in the in the kitchen with all the mob bosses so like you know you look at eric roberts and he like kind of has this fucking look on his face like what the hell is what is that like what am i looking at yeah. <laughs> like it's very genuine stuff and so again man i can't believe they're doing this shit way back then but that's just filmmaking man they've just always been doing it i just have to just my way of thinking yeah so they've always been doing it but what i find it with these early films is like a sense of showmanship almost like a like a william castle kind of thing where the studio makes a big deal about it you know like we're not going to show you what he looks like until the movie you know kind of almost like hit what hitchcock might have done in the 60s we don't see that so much anymore i think these stories come out later after a movie's done like you said with the dark knight you know like his look was not really kept secret from the audience right you know you can't in this day and age exactly back then like people didn't even read the newspaper back in the 20s you know like how many people really even were educated enough to read is what i've started that's why they all went to movies i mean that's just how i'm thinking about maybe the 20s isn't that unsophisticated it's just i've seen too many movies i don't know (laughs) i'm trying to think of another star who would uh like like a modern star where a studio could have that sort of strategy where like we know you love this guy we know this guy is always buried under makeup and he's gonna have a unique look like we just don't have that anymore i mean we get a little bit of that with like you know my first thought is like that was doug jones in a guillermo del toro film like we know he's always going to be buried under prosthetics and makeup but like he doesn't have that star quality it's like this would be akin to like tom cruise being put into some crazy makeup and like we don't get to see it until the movie releases right like we don't we just don't get that well i was even thinking i was going to say tom cruise but in regards to like his stunts right and it's like come to see the new mission impossible because he's gonna try to kill himself right like, sure. That's kind of their marketing at this point, and it's it's incredible. I mean, the guy nowadays that I go to, and there's really only one, and it's like Andy Circus, right? Sure. And it's a whole different ball game when it comes to this dude now because, like, he's clearly a student of Lon Chaney, but, like, you know, his makeup's digital and shit. And so, like, it's he's even breaking new ground. It's weird. Like, he, he also doesn't get, like, nearly the respect he kind of deserved the attention i feel like he gets a lot don't get me wrong but i I feel like he should be a mega 
name as opposed to just like what he is now and stuff and like you know like blank checks left and right for that guy like just let him try anything man he's just so progressive like i love that guy so but yeah you're right like one name in like a hundred years yeah like I, i can't think of another guy who was so well known for being an actor and a makeup artist, you know, like, uh, actually, I mean, I can't. Okay. I take it back. Tom Savini is probably the closest we get to this, but Tom Savini, he's not on the level that Lon Chaney was in terms of Hollywood stardom, right? He just doesn't have the acting chops. I don't think it's, I don't think that's his focus. I think he's more on the makeup side. Right. Yes, he can act and yes, he does act, but like, he's not known as the actor. He's known more, I think, as more for the makeup. Right. Yeah. So if I were to, if I were to pick a modern day analog to Lon Chaney, I'd probably go Tom Savini because he does act quite a bit. He doesn't have the star status that Lon Chaney had in the 20s. He's recognizable. Like, he doesn't do this to himself in his movies. He's too vain, right? Like, he's always showing up looking like Tom Savini. <laughs> That's true. I mean, he'll turn himself into a vampire or kill himself, but, like, he'll, he's showing up. You gotta, he wants you to know it's him. For sure. Nothing to, I don't mean to, like, come down hard on Tom Savini. I think the guy's a legend. Oh, yeah. We're definitely fans of Tom Savini on this show. I get what you're saying. Okay, so after the reveal, the Phantom decides he's going to allow Christine to go back to the opera to sing under the condition that she only ever loves him and does not speak a word of what she's seen to anybody. And, of course, the first thing that she does is find Raul at the masquerade ball and tell him about this arrangement that she has with the phantom tells him everything like immediately immediately yeah (laughs) she's like i swear if you just let me go and he's like okay and she's like oh my god he fucking fell for that (laughs) right and so uh as we've mentioned there's the the famous masquerade ball sequence where the phantom shows up dressed in the guise of the red death which is again one of the most impressive sequences in this film just from a technical standpoint if you love old black and white silent films this this scene is like a shot in the arm visually and in the subsequent scene on the rooftop i think is, is even better in a lot of ways. I already mentioned my, my love of the spawn imagery yes. in the rooftop, but in the 1925 version on the disc, when they go to the masquerade, they play that dance macabre Yes, at the masquerade ball. I thought that was great. You know, with all the different soundtracks and stuff like this. Also on the 25 version early on is that little Hitchcock Presents riff. It's like... Dun, 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 dun. Yep, dun, yep, dun, yep, dun, yep. Dun, 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 dun. I was like, what's going on here? It was all very enjoyable. Agreed, agreed. After the Phantom... Uh, overhears Christine spilling the beans about everything. He arranges for the next performance. He sets everything up so that he can kidnap Christine and whisk her away to do whatever it is <laughs> he wants to do. <laughs> and, and so now all the pieces are in place. Uh, Ledoux and Raoul pursue the Phantom and Christine and Joseph Bouquet, your favorite character, or, you know, your favorite maybe side character. His brother is uh, going to avenge his death because Joseph... Oh, yeah, we didn't really talk about Joseph, but, I mean, small character, but... Well, he's hanged because he knows how to get down to the Phantom's lair. Like, he's found all the secret entrances and the Phantom figured that out. I almost wondered if that was him in in that reshot intro, if that was him sort of lurking around in the dungeon and then the Phantom saw him, or I'm not sure what's happening in those sequences still. Oh, it could be. Yeah, I, I don't know what's going on in those opening sequences, but I think they're gorgeous. You know, I made that note. Yeah, but him being hanged, that reveal was, I was like, whoa, that's yeah. that's shocking. Yeah. That worked. So now we've got like multiple things all colliding into, into the same space. This last half hour is like action packed. It's just nonstop. 
the Phantom takes Christine down into his lair, and then everyone is sort of descending into the subterranean Parisian crypts and whatnot to capture the Phantom and rescue Christine. We've got Raoul and, and Ledoux teaming up, and they have found a secret trap door to get down there. Yeah, they end up in the torture chamber rooms, like the room of mirrors that gets like super hot, and then the room with all the gunpowder that gets super flooded right so i wondered at the beginning of this movie when they when they talk about how the underground of the parisian opera house had you know torture chambers and dungeons like why is that relevant like a why are they there b why does that matter and so i found out that you know those did exist to some degree because of the um the second revolution in france so they they do exist underground b they matter for this story because as raul and ledoux pursue the phantom they end up caught in one of those rooms basically they're like kind of in a furnace for a little while right and and in exchange for their lives christine has has told the phantom that she will marry him so she saves raul and ledoux by uh, promising her life and love to the phantom who then whisks her away but there's the one moment i gotta mention that just like i wonder now that you mentioned it earlier if they put this in because they needed more comedy so like the first two guys go together then raul's brother goes at it alone and then sort of the mob comes down after him. And the Phantom fucking takes this long bamboo shoot, puts it in his mouth, and walks underneath the river of runoff and just sewage and shit and everything. It's like fucking Bugs Bunny in a pond where you just see this little thing sticking out of the water and you know, like, oh, there's the Phantom, like, be it all sneaky and shit. And then he, and then he just pushes over the boat and drowns the dude. And then you see him walk out of the water again and he's just covered <laughs> in shit, bro. That's like all I could think about. Yeah, I, I love that scene. So it's on the cover of the Blu-ray and that image was also on the poster. Oh my god, it is! Look at that! That's amazing. Like, the image that was on the poster was the phantom underwater with that sort of bamboo or, or, or the, you know, it was like a, like a snorkel. A, you know, yeah. it's a snorkel. Like a pipe. Yeah, like a snorkel. I have never seen a, a living human pull that off until this movie. You're right, because it is very Bugs Bunny <laughs> or Mickey Mouse. Or like ninja, right? Like, that's ninja shit. Like, how did they know about that? Right. I, think that, I do think that that is meant to be a, some kind of levity. I mean, it, it certainly is by today's standards. I think we it's impossible to watch that in 2020 and, and not kind of giggle at it. I, I'd have to wonder what audiences in, 19, in the 1920s thought of something like that because it's just so silly. But I do love that as a moment. It's just, it's weird. And um, because it's so cartoony, you don't expect him to take that route. But, you know, he does it and it makes he makes it work. So I do love that moment. Thank you for reminding me about, about that. Then the Phantom takes the carriage that Raul has arranged to wait for he and Christine for the end of the show, his plan being that once the show's over they will get in the carriage and they will move to England and so the phantom takes the carriage and the crowd with the torches and pitchforks all chase after him and he speeds off with Christine in the carriage looking like a madman I think amazing yeah in no other part of this movie does the phantom look better I think that the high energy sort of frenetic cinematography here could be clearer but at the same time the way it's lit and just the that sort of haphazard pace of the editing and and everything it just really sells this idea that they're moving incredibly fast and he is a crazed maniac on the loose and then we get our one big stunt i feel right 
The one big stunt that is not the chandelier. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, right, right. I, I just, I consider this more of a stunt because I guess, like, it's a car crash. Like, a person jumps out of a carriage and then the carriage crashes and the phantom goes, like, tumbling out of it. It looks like these two stunt people look like they got crippled or something. <laughs> like, I just was not expecting that level of sensationalism, I guess, at this point. But, wow, that was crazy. Yeah, and the way they speed up the film for that sequence, it just looks so good. Oh, dude, you probably just nailed it. Like, they filmed that at, like, two frames, and then they just sped it up. Like, someone just hopped out of the carriage, right? And then, like, they cr- overcranked it or whatever. I know that's how they filmed the, the chandelier. So the chandelier was uh, lowered slowly on top of the audience, and then they undercranked it, undercranked the camera, so that it would it would record, you know, like, maybe six frames per second so that when they were to speed it up it would fall dramatically faster so yeah i'd be surprised to find out that they didn't do something similar with the carriage because that seems like a pretty dangerous stunt but yeah it's it's a pretty great climax of course and raul uh, tends to his bride-to-be and the mob confronts eric the phantom along the seine and i love that moment when he like in a last-ditch effort goes to pull something out of his jacket and holds it up in a clenched fist and then and and then they all kind of recoil, like, what has he got in his hand? And then, of course, you know, he, he's got nowhere to go. He reveals he's got nothing in his hand. They tear him limb from limb and throw him in the river. Like I said, I, it's an it's a ending fit for a character as despicable as he is. I don't, I, I certainly find it difficult to feel sorry for him. Yeah, I maybe, like, was starting to feel sorry for, like, not sorry for him, but I was, like, starting to be like, maybe this guy, and then it's like, oh, no. You know what I'm saying? Like, I always feel like, um... They like they try to get you, but at the end they want you to remember like nope, like this guy should be teared limb from limb and thrown into the river by an angry mob. I think like again, we both watched this movie a bunch of times. The more I think about it, the more I am happy that they didn't try to make him sympathetic in the end because so much of his behavior is so despicable that like by 2020 standards, this movie still holds up in terms of how it resolves, right? Like we're not trying to 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 make excuses. We're not trying to um, you know, humanize this predator. That's exactly what he is, you know? And they probably didn't have a word for it back then. Like, all they knew was Jack the Ripper, right? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) That's their, you know, go-to when it comes to stalkers. And it's like, if you're not, you know, dicing up prostitutes on a daily basis, you're not so bad. It's like, well, wait a minute now. (laughs) And that could be why I prefer this version over other versions of Phantom, because I don't think that the Phantom is a character to aspire to. You know, I think that this movie rightfully shows him for the the, the monster that he is. You know, it's amazing that we that, that's what we got. Again, we've, we've covered all the sort of different ways this movie could have turned out. It's amazing to me that it became what it is, this 1929 version, which it's not the original, but I, I consider it the definitive version. It's just an incredible work of art and, and holds up by today's standards, which you don't see too often. And we're, we're not going to be able to say the same thing about all these movies that we talk about, but I'm happy to be able to say that about this movie, considering it's the first and it's the earliest and had, had so many reasons to not be the case, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, this is one I didn't, you know, this is something I mentioned when we talked about Frankenstein a little bit in the intro episode we did, but like, this is a human monster. Okay, like this guy isn't like he doesn't have wings, you know, like any of that kind of shit. Like it's just 
pure what is it like it's just pure like human influence basically right. you know like he this is the kind of guy who's like what they like cult leaders become you know where <laughs> you know he lures these women into their basement locks them up and you know you know it's like the incredible Kimmy Schmidt or whatever like <laughs> that's poor that's poor Christine in this scenario um so I think Universal might have realized that like earlier than I thought like here right out of the gate like the Phantom of the Opera is the monster he's a human being he's an actual man we'll get that later with Victor Frankenstein we'll get that later with the Invisible Man and and such and so like I like that I never really recognized this before so this is something I'm paying much more attention to this time around and and here it is right in the first movie it's really cool absolutely yeah I I love that this is the first thing we're talking about and I love that it, it holds up so well the only thing that I kind of miss, okay, one thing yeah. from the 1925 version, the 29 version just, it's a hard cut out, we're done as soon as the Phantom's dead. And for the most part, I like that when it comes to movies, but the 25 version cuts to this shot of the wedding between Christine and uh, Raul. Right, it's got an epilogue. It's got a little epilogue, and it just like, I don't know, it just reminded me of like the end of episode two, where it's just like this, like, we just had like this huge war, this big tragedy or whatever, and then we're just going to cut to a wedding in the middle of nowhere and end it on like this note. But it goes to show, I think, you know, the the frame of mind that Carl Lemley and the studio was in uh, later at that point in 29 was like, this is a horror movie. Like, let's try and cut this back down to its essence. You know, there's less it's probably got less jokes you know they probably cut a lot of that more out and they cut out the more of the romance and shit right they cut the wedding out and and so i think it caters more to being i don't want to say like the complete version but maybe this is the one this is like the version you know, I think that people should watch. Yeah, the 25 version has about 20 minutes of extra footage, which expands on on Raul and Christine and uh, Ledoux and all these other characters. But like I said before, I think that it was smart to cut a lot of that out because the real focus of this movie, like the real star of this movie is the Phantom, right? You could make the argument that those other characters become less interesting, although I think Ledoux becomes more interesting the more mysterious he is. Uh, I think Christine and Raul become less interesting. And so I don't miss the lack of that epilogue in the 1929-1930 versions because they're not the characters I'm most interested in, right? But if in the 1925 version, if we're going to say that, okay, these are our main characters and the Phantom is just the bad guy, then yeah, okay, let's build these characters up and then give them a send-off at the end of the movie. But yeah, I think the way that this movie has been cut down since and then, you know, added to to emphasize the, the opera, like the, the focus has really been put on the Phantom. Like we don't need to know that Christine and Raul are going to be okay because the Phantom has been vanquished right he's been killed and thrown into the river stories over Raul and Christine will be fine totally absolutely I agree yeah and after all you know it is the fan of the opera so as soon as, as soon as he's dead the story should be over <laughs> right and and I, I do love that you know that he went from being the villain in a story to being the main character of the story that's really interesting too you know now that you mentioned that like how often is the main character not introduced or at least not seen on screen for a half hour you know over on the other a lot of the other podcasts on cage club and like i feel like it comes up a lot when tobin addington's on an episode maybe because like i i remember this from his class but it's like you know the more you sort of build up a character when he's introduced if you do it well and properly when he's introduced he's gonna be badass like right. already like you'll already sort of be accustomed to it and ready for him to kick ass or something and so like they talked to phantom up for like 20 minutes and you see shadows and things like that but like yeah when you first see him in his mask it's like damn here he is 
full-blown, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, he's in his next to final form. Like, he's <laughs> ready to really go. It's it's really cool. Yeah, they really laid the groundwork at the beginning of the movie so that Lon Chaney could just show up and just hit the ground running. If nothing else, you know, he is the greatest thing about this movie. I, I, I wish there were more Lon Chaney films available. That's the thing That's the thing about Lon Chaney is that so many of his films, I mean, because this, this came out towards the end of his career, so a lot of his films have been lost or um, they're difficult to find. You know, they're just it's this this and hunchback and 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 there are others you know that he's in and that you can get and there are some where he's not even in makeup you know he he was not unsurprisingly not much of a leading man you know he often didn't get the girl but you know there were movies where he didn't wear makeup at all and they they do exist so now i kind of want to seek them out because i really don't know as much about lon chaney as i i would love to i really just know him from this and and a little bit of hunchback so yeah check out that cagney movie if you've got some time you know i mean if you want if you're just to absorb everything about the guy like it's totally worth seeing yeah and i would love to at some point maybe do that as a bonus episode here because i think it would definitely fit in yeah it's really interesting i think along the way how many movies about the movies we're going to be talking about there sort of are and maybe not directly but like there's that movie there's I know we're doing Dracula next not Nosferatu but there's like you know the movie about the making of that movie it's fictionalized but then there's like Gods and Monsters about James Whale's career stuff and it's funny how many movies about the monster movies like the making of the monster movies that there are out there it's sort of like a whole sort of subsection yeah and, and at some point if we you know if we can find the time to, to squeeze those in I would love to do that uh, please write to us and let us know if you would like uh, us to cover some of those movies because I think I definitely have the interest to do it. I think with that we can wrap up this episode unless there's anything else uh, you'd like to add, Mike. Oh, there was one thing I meant to mention like way earlier. Uh, it's just a little tidbit, but like you know, Raul's my main man in this movie. I just can't help it. And when he's introduced, he's got like a number two on his uniform, and you know he's second fiddle in the movie. So I thought that was funny. Like it's just it's like branded on this guy. Like he he's got to get it off him. Like he needs to uh, he needs to win out over the Phantom. You know, with Christine's love and shit. Like I just I don't know why I gravitated to that so much about this time but I just found it so funny and engaging. I was like, this man is not going down without a fight. Like, you are not going to push this guy to the side. He is not sitting in a corner. It's very funny. Again, I think the idea of Raul is great. You know, I like. I think I just, I didn't see the same Raul you did, uh, but I think that there's potential for, like, all of that. I think we get pieces of that in other Phantom adaptations. And so it's definitely there. I, You know, you're definitely reading into it correctly, but I don't know that, the Raul in this adaptation of Phantom is is, is that Raul, but yeah, no, I'm I'm definitely conflating him because of I'm just amazed how much of this feels modern on its own that I think I'm like projecting onto some of these characters when they're not giving me enough just because that's the way movies were made back then. You can only tell so much on a title card. People don't want to, you know, even today people don't want to read subtitles. As far as like I'm told, I have no problem doing that. But like, could you imagine like going back and being like, we gotta read this shit too? Like, I'm just here to watch, <laughs> you know? So I think there's, you know, there's limitations, again, to just filmmaking at the time and stuff. So they do the best job, I think, that they could have. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think we pretty much covered everything that I wanted to get to. I mean, I had I had some ridiculous notes that I don't think need to be uh, read out loud. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to talk about the disc a little bit more for anybody who might be interested in picking it up. Did you have a favorite version of this film overall? I think my favorite one is just the the 1929 one at 20 frames per second. I think that is just 
you know, that's probably the one to watch. It's, you know, that and the other two, you know, all of the ones from 1929 are pretty much the same. They're just at different speeds with different soundtracks. So it's kind of like, what do you like? Do you like organ pipe music? Do you like orchestra? Or do you want to actually hear the track with the opera on it? And that's the one I would watch again, is probably that one. I loved a lot about the 25 version, but it, it is very poor quality in comparison to what they do with the others as they're presented. So I think that's the one to watch is uh, the 1929 20 frames per second with that orchestra music. And then check out the audio commentary because that guy knows his shit, man. A really great audio commentary. Yes. So I, I agree. I think the 20 frame per second version of this with the uh, Gabriel Thibodeau score is my favorite overall, although the other scores are pretty excellent as well. I think I really enjoyed what he did. Like the, the most authentic is probably the, the Gaylord Carter score. That's the pipe organ. So I think when the film premiered originally in the in 25 they had i mean universal spared no expense they they had a, a real live organist playing there uh live and so i think that would maybe the most authentic viewing experience but i thought that the uh gabriel thibodeau score in the 20 frame per second version was was the most enjoyable overall i particularly enjoyed some of the um the mickey mousing he did with you know, like, for example, the cat coming down the stairs, you get that sort of like musical sound effect of the cat coming down the stairs, you know, so he does a lot of that and sort of gives you the illusion of sound where there is none. And I thought that was a lot of fun to listen to. And I primarily like it because, like I said, we get the opera singing, like you hear human voices on that audio track, which is uh, pretty great. And aside from that, I think that the 20 frame per second is only really noticeable during a lot of the, the opera sequences. You know, I noticed it most when, when the ballet dancers were doing their thing. I could tell that it was a little more choppy, but aside from that, I really didn't notice a huge difference in quality uh, in terms of projection speed. So yeah, definitely uh, get this disc if you don't have it and, and check out that 20 frame per second version of the 29 yeah interestingly enough i think this is the only um film not in that universal collection that we're going to be watching everything else from when i had the idea for this and we, we started developing it you know i realized that universal has a box set of their 30 monster movies and it starts with dracula and i thought why didn't it start with phantom of the opera because you know that was kind of the beginning of the universal monsters and i you know I don't know specifically what the reason is. I, I, I know that Phantom went into public domain, as you said. It went into public domain in 1953. So it could have something to do with that. Kino Lorber managed to get the distribution rights, and they put together a hell of a good disc. Like you say, it's in public domain. They could put it on, but maybe they just didn't have access to all these extra special features, right? Like that, to me, feels like the stuff that's licensed, you know? Like maybe uh, certain scores or, or the audio commentary, or you know what I'm saying? Or like extra footage and things. Like that's where my mind went um, as to why. Because you could get a version of this without all this extra stuff. Nosferatu as well, mentioned that earlier, that's in public domain. So like there's hundreds of different versions of that out there, right? Like I feel like the same for Phantom. So it is curious why they didn't put some copy on their collection. Yeah, but that's okay. It's really the only one that's missing. So um, I don't have a problem supporting Kino Lorber. They, they do some pretty fantastic work. Totally. And with that, it's once again time for us to slink back down into our crypts for our month-long hibernation. But don't worry, we'll rise again on Friday, November 27th to chat about Todd Browning's 1931 film Dracula, starring Bela Lugosi, 
So I really hope you join us for that. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at MonsterMadePod, on Instagram and Facebook at The Monsters That Made Us. You can email us at TheMonstersThatMadeUs at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Cologne. And Mike, do you want to tell everybody where they can find you? You could find me and all my previous work at CageClub.me, Facebook.com slash CageClub, or at CageClubPod on Twitter and Instagram. Um, I guess we also have another email. If you want a question for the network, I guess, at large, you could uh, email us at monsters at cageclub.me. We'll get those as well. And that's about it. I, I had a lot of fun. I think this was a really fun episode. I look forward to, to next month. Yeah, me too. So, uh, man, Dracula, I can't wait. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to support our show, you can become a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash the monsters that made us. For all other things Cage Club related, head over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. So before we go, we would like to wish you a safe and happy Halloween and stay spooky, everybody. Bye.